Hey there, friends. My name is Kyle Devlin. Welcome to Having a Blast with Kyle. Today, I'm going to be doing another deep dive of one of my all-time favorite records. Today, we're going to be discussing the seminal album from the band Jimmy Eat World. We're going to be discussing their breakout album, although the two albums before this particular album were very popular and garnered levels of success for the band and definitely allowed them to gain an audience in the indie rock scene, the the underground uh, indie rock scene, or at that time, the burgeoning emo scene with Static Prevails, their first record, their first major label record. And then the follow-up, which was Clarity. And Clarity is is a classic in and of itself. But today we're going to be discussing Bleed American by the one and only Jimmy Eat World. Jimmy Eat World is a band from Mesa, Arizona. They formed in the early 90s. The band is comprised of singer Jim Adkins, bass player Rick Birch, drummer Zach Lind, and rhythm guitar and backing vocals Tom Litton. And... Pretty quickly signed to a major label, they signed to Capitol Records before putting out Static Prevails. Jim Adkins, as well as the drummer Zach Lind, have both mentioned that it may have been a bit premature for them to sign to a major label as early in their career as they were. They were still kind of figuring out how to be a band, how to function as a band, what kind of sound they wanted to achieve. They were approached by Capitol. Their A&R person at the time was Lauren Israel. Fun fact about Lauren Israel, I actually met him in the year 2003. In the summertime, my band Game Time at the time, we went to this panel, this kind of talk that was held. I can't remember who exactly, who held the the panel, but we paid $400 to get in front of music industry execs. So A&R people, booking agents, label types. And I remember Lauren Israel just happened to be one of the people. And I was really excited to meet him, not only because he was the guitarist in the band Soul Asylum, he was also the man behind uh, signing Jimmy World initially to Capitol Records. So, fun fact. He was a really, really nice guy, too. He gave us some really good constructive criticism at the time. And he was just really, really nice. And at that point, I had recognized him, too, because he actually came to a couple of our shows. I think he was checking out a couple of the bands that we were playing with at the time. But I do remember seeing him, and he remembered seeing us, which was cool. And he had he had really nice things to say. Okay, so back to Jimmy Eat World. Today, I want to talk about Bleed American, which is one of my favorite records of all time. This album has held up. It is timeless in my mind. And sonically, it still sounds just incredible. And at the time of the recording of the project, and I want to talk about all the facts associated with the making of the record because it's pretty fascinating. It's pretty pretty compelling, the story surrounding Bleed American and all of the, all of the situations and circumstances that led up to the making of it. But when you listen to that record, it still sounds just so good. The guitars, just they're modern sounding, they're crisp, they had some good tricks in the can as far as production goes. Mark Trombino, I want to talk a little bit about Mark Trombino. He was just at the top of his game during the making of this record. And you can just tell he was really inspired, not only, you know, as a producer, you know, sometimes you're just kind of engineering, but making things sound good. But I think he was inspired when it came to working with Pro Tools. He was using tricks that a lot of people weren't using around that time. And a lot of people emulate those tricks even today. Things like cutting off the front end and back end of tracks to make it sound a little bit more crisp, a little bit more clean. And he was he was always known for cutting up tracks and creating sounds and sonic landscapes 
just by kind of rearranging these cut up samples of some of the sounds, whether it be drums or guitars. And you can tell he was doing that and he was kind of learning and exploring that with this particular record. And I can't imagine how many times Pro Tools crashed on him because at that time Pro Tools was still known as Slow Tools, which makes sense. And if you go back and watch the Believe in What You Want DVD that accompanied the deluxe issue of the album, it's basically the making of the record. And you can see that they're they're using one of those old school kind of thick monitor computers, personal computers. And I would imagine the memory in that thing wasn't plentiful. So they were probably having a tough time getting those tracks down. But once they did, they could just save it and then move on. So I want to talk about the production of the record. I want to talk about the songs. I want to talk about the, the stories behind the record, the making of the record. So here we go. The deep dive of the one and only Bleed American by the one and only Jimmy World. Bleed American is the third full length from the band Jimmy World, the American rock band or emo band, whatever you want to call them. Bleed American was released on July 24th, 2001, almost 20 years old at this point, just turned 19. And it was released by DreamWorks Records. And we're going to get into the history of what happened, the transition from Capital to DreamWorks, both major labels. Originally released as titled Bleed American, it was re-released as the self-titled Jimmy Eat World following the September 11 attacks on New York and Washington, D.C., which took place a mere seven weeks after it was released. So it was released right in the heart of the summertime, and it's a pretty summer-sounding record. It's very upbeat. It would have made sense in the fall as well. A lot of the Jimmy World albums over the years have been released in the fall, and this one could be played in the summertime or the fall. I think it would accompany both seasons very well. The album was recorded with producer Mark Trombino, as I mentioned earlier. It was produced by him and recorded by him in Los Angeles. The musical style was more direct and accessible than its predecessor, Clarity. And Clarity came out in 1999, so it came out two years prior. And even though Clarity is revered as as a classic, an indie rock emo classic, it just didn't really quite catch on. And they were on Capitol at the at that point. It was their second record with Capitol. And I would imagine Capitol was hoping to have some sort of a single where they could gain momentum with the band and then justify keeping them around for more records. But it just didn't seem to work. So they eventually parted ways with Capitol. Clarity received less commercial success as Bleed American. And Bleed American yielded four singles overall. But I like to think of it as five. So the first official single was Bleed American, the title track, The Middle, which is arguably the most successful and well-known Jimmy World song that there is, and the band would probably attest to that as well, and I think they have in interviews. Sweetness, another great single, and A Praise Chorus, the second song on the record. But I like to think of Hear You Me as, as the fifth single because there was a point where I felt like every week I was going to see a new movie and Hear You Me was playing in the background. It was on like five different movie soundtracks or at least during the movie. Out of the four singles, each managed to enter the top 20 of at least one U.S. chart. The most successful was The Middle, which reached the number one spot on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart and number five on the Billboard Hot 100. In March of 2002, Bleed American was certified gold, so not too much longer after it was released, not even a year, and it was certified gold by the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America, and it was certified platinum that August after its sales reached over 1 million copies. As of September 2016, the album has sold over 1.6 million copies, which I would think it would have sold considerably more, especially worldwide at this point. I think... 
it's a testament to what Napster did at that time because Napster illegal downloading was definitely in its infancy. It was brand new, but I think that definitely played a role because this is this is a classic album. I think Jimmy World is is close to being a household name. They reinstituted the popularity of the middle when Taylor Swift did a commercial featuring the song a couple years back, and I remember reading that their iTunes sales went up considerably after that. Everybody was reminded of how much how catchy that song is and how amazing that song is. Not surprising. On April 29, 2008, Geffen Records released a deluxe edition containing the original album of Bleed American and, and other bonus material. The deluxe edition included several B-sides, acoustic versions of the songs, live tracks, demos, and a re-recorded version of Your House. The album's title and title track were restored to Bleed American in 2008 on that Geffen release. Okay, so I want to talk about the background of the album and the interesting story that kind of leads up to the making of Bleed American. In February 1999, Jimmy Eat World released their second major label album with Capital, Clarity. The label started to shelve the album until a few key radio stations started playing the song Lucky Denver Mint. So I didn't realize that they were already ready to shelve the album because they didn't, they probably didn't hear a definitive single and then all of a sudden these radio stations started playing it. And that's a great song. I mean, it's definitely a single. It's the second song on Clarity. And honestly, it would fit right in with Bleed American too. So they started to shelve it early, but then... Lo and behold, a few radio stations started playing it. After Capitol Records decided not to release their next major label album, the band left the label. They parted ways together, and if you listen to interviews with Jim and Zach, they they often mention that, that Capitol didn't seem to really give a shit about the band. That's the that's their quote. They often say that Capitol just didn't really care about their band, and I would imagine at that time, you know, an indie-sounding emo pop group. Capital probably just didn't really know where to stick them. They were sort of genre-defying on Clarity. There's a lot of different genres on that record. They may have just not really understood what Jimmy World was after or who their audience was, really. So they part ways with Capital, and at that time, Jimmy World distributed their albums independently while on tour in Europe. So they leave the label... But they know they want to continue on. They know they're gaining momentum. They know they're gaining fans. And Clarity, you know, it probably lended itself to packing mid-sized level clubs. I'm sure they were playing clubs of anywhere from 300 to 1,000 people. And I'm sure they packed those around that time. I remember at that time, I was I had a couple of burned CDs with songs from Clarity. And I really liked the songs. It was a lot softer than a lot of the punk rock that I was listening to at the same time. But I knew the songs were really good. For me, This Is Heaven. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. That was on one of the burn CDs and on a comp fueled by ramen comp that I used to listen to quite a bit and I just loved that song it's just so pretty and it's very U2 there's definitely some U2 influences in it some of the guitar flourishes remind me of the edge and I hear that in Bleed American as well so they they started independently themselves distributing their records selling their records at shows and things so they decided to go on tour to Europe they wanted to go on tour to support Clarity. Drummer Zach Lind recalled that the label didn't really believe in us. He's talking about capital, but in a way that was sort of a good thing. This is his quote, because it let us take control of what we needed to do. We learned we had to do it ourselves because no one else would do it for us. So they were self-reliant. They were they were empowered 
and they didn't really have the excuse or the crux to say, well, our label isn't really paying attention to us. So they just did it themselves and they, they persevered. And it's a true testament to them believing in themselves and knowing that they, they could keep doing what they were doing and sustain a living from it because they did have fans. They did have a, a core fan base at that point. And they'd been a, a band for five years up to that point or a little over five years. So they became self-sufficient and they went on tour to Europe. In August of 2000, the year 2000, this is the year before Bleed American was released, Jimmy World released the compilation album Singles through an independent label called Big Wheel Recreation, which included B-sides and unreleased songs from the band up to that point. So they released this singles compilation as a way to support themselves and to basically fund what would be the next record. So later that year, they returned to Europe on tour where Clarity was enjoying some success. And I would imagine they were playing to pretty big crowds and selling a lot of merchandise. And they were doing really well in, in Germany specifically. So the Germans, they at the time, they knew what was up. They saw emo exploding. After this tour, they launched a new split this time, the release was with Jebediah. They had done a couple of splits before this. They did one with Sensefield, and they did another one as well with the band Mineral. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the recording process of Bleed American. So the recording sessions began for Bleed American shortly after the release of Singles, the Singles compilation, in August of 2000, and took place in L.A. The sales from Singles, the compilation that they were selling, and the proceeds from their European tour helped Jimmy World to fund the album's recording sessions. Bleed American was produced by Mark Trombino. At this point, they knew Mark Trombino well. He had already produced and engineered the first two major label records on Capitol. So Static Prevails and Clarity were both produced by Mark Trombino. So the band had a good relationship with him. They knew how he worked. They were probably comfortable enough to say, hey, I don't necessarily love that idea. Can we try this? Or can you maybe change that line? So they had a good, easy working relationship relationship with each other by that point. You can imagine the band, they trusted Mark to produce this record. Trombino already produced two of the band's previous studio albums. Static Prevails came out in 1996, Clarity in 99. Uh, Mark Trombino also produced Blink-182's breakthrough album, Dude Ranch, and that came out in 97. So Mark Trombino, at that point, he had made a name for himself. He was in an indie rock band called Drive Like Jehu, that was really popular in the underground, and he had he had produced quite a bit of records at that point. A lot of burgeoning early emo indie rock bands. The money budgeted for the record for Bleed American was unfortunately it was insufficient. So they they made enough money to book studio time, but they didn't have enough money to really book all the studio time that they thought they needed, and they also didn't think they had enough money to pay Mark Trombino. So Trombino, a wonderful human being, and we're all lucky to have him because now we have Bleed American, he offered to work for free during the recording sessions on the producing end, and he was confident that he would be reimbursed by the album's predicted commercial success. So he took a gamble, but he knew, he must have heard those early demos and thought, okay, I can make this sound great. These are hits. These are hits in the making, and I am going to be able to create a really pristine-sounding, clean record, and these guys are more than likely going to blow up. So he saw something there, and pretty incredible that he was able to just say, no, I I, I trust you guys, meaning the band. I, I know that I'll be compensated on the back end. And I've also heard him say that the majority of the bands that came to him around that time that wanted to record with him and hire him and pay him essentially, came to him because they were so obsessed with the way Clarity sounded. So he was getting a lot of work from Clarity. That's probably another reason why he thought, I'll just produce this record. It'll be a labor of love, like most things 
awesome in life and then I will make it up in the back end. And that's probably exactly what happened, I would imagine, because Mark and the band seemed to still be on good terms. Some of the songs included in Bleed American had already been written and recorded during the Clarity Sessions, but the band felt that these particular songs, one of which was Sweetness, which is mind-blowing, the band felt that they were recorded too late to include them in that particular album. So it's mind-blowing because my mind can't wrap itself around the idea of having early sweetness on Clarity. That just seems like too many good songs. I'm glad they they held back because I actually, I never heard the demo version back when it was circulating and I know they had released it, but my first experience with sweetness was the the re-recorded version on Bleed American and that is still easily my favorite version. I've heard both now. The band collaborated with some guest vocalists in several of the album's songs, one of which was Davey Vaughn Bolin of The Promise Ring. And when he mentions Come On Davey, seeing me something that I know, I always assumed he was talking about Davey Havoc because I know they're friends too. But no, he's talking about Davey from The Promise Ring and that actually makes a lot more sense. So I feel kind of dumb right now. (laughs) I know they had toured with The Promise Ring around that time or the late 90s. Davey contributed vocals in the song A Praise Chorus. And Rachel Hayden of That Dog lent her voice in songs like Hear You Me, If You Don't Don't, Cautioners, and My Sundown. And man, her her voice just complements Jim so well. I don't know if that record would have given all of us the chills that it does on some of those songs without her particular vocals. They are so good, especially on the softer songs Hear You Me and My Sundown. The harmonies that she does are just so perfect. And I'm just so glad those are on record. And I believe she toured with the band for a little bit too. And I'm sure she would sing those parts along with others. The album was recorded in two studios. One was Californians Cherokee in Los Angeles and Hard Drive was another one in North Hollywood. The mixture... The mixtures were made in South Ecstasy Recording Studio, also in L.A. The material on Bleed American was more accessible and aggressive than its predecessor. That's pretty much a given. I think anybody who had enjoyed Clarity and then popped in Bleed American right after purchasing it, right out of the gate, they can tell it's a little bit more aggressive. The first thing you hear is the entire band playing those big anthemic chords that are kind of janky and kind of dirty in a way, but everything's just so in tune that it's it just somehow works it's kind of dirty but clean at the same time with the lead lines in between the big power chords on bleed american but it's much more aggressive and clarity had a more layered sprawling sound it definitely had those kind of big soundscapes on a lot of those songs and that's what they were kind of going for because they didn't know if they were going to be able to make another record after clarity they were just kind of going for broke because they weren't sure if capital really had any any interest in them or anything invested in them to the point where they were going to start really paying attention to them and and pushing them towards radio and getting them on big tours and all the things that bands hope a major label will do for them so in regards to the stylistic approach of the album bleed american frontman jim adkins said Things still got pretty gnarly in the studio as far as experimentation, so they still experimented. And he goes on to say, but it was always to an end that was complementary to the song itself. And that makes sense. So they were experimenting with sounds and cutting up tracks and things, but they, they just wanted to serve the song. So he goes on to say, we wanted to really make sure that we weren't doing things like just to put a wacky keyboard sound in. It had to be doing something constructive for the song. 
So the songs on Bleed American are very much to the point. There's not a whole lot of meandering musically. They're very succinct in their songwriting process in that particular record. And you can hear it. Every song has its own personality, which is really cool. And I think that lends to the idea that they were still being slightly experimental. Because if you're going to experiment with a bunch of different sounds, the songs themselves can still be pretty succinct and of themselves. And they say what they want to say and then they get out. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a six and a half minute song for it to be experimental. They can still experiment with a lot of sounds. And there's a lot of sounds on this particular record, which is really cool. Like I said earlier, every song has its own personality and you can really hear that it's reflected in the songs. And it, it sounds like that's kind of what they were going for. There's continuity in it because it sounds great and the sonic mix of the whole thing, there is some consistency there. But I love the fact that each song on Bleed American has kind of a life of its own. Critics have described the genres of the album, and there are many, as alternative rock, emo, emo pop, pop punk, and power pop. What's interesting about this album is that it does kind of include all of those. You can call it whatever you want. I just call it good music. It's definitely catchy. The songs are catchy. The melodies are very well written. There's definitely many semblances of pop within this record. The lyrical composition in Bleed American also remained rather direct and straightforward in comparison to Clarity. Mark Vanderhoff of All Music said that Bleed American didn't have any 16-minute songs, referencing the last song on Clarity, Goodbye Sky Harbor. Rather, he called the music on Bleed American just straight-ahead rock and roll, performed with punk energy and alt-rock smarts. I think that encapsulates the record pretty well. It is a pretty smart record. And when I think of smart records, I think of the records that stand the test of time. They don't feel dated. There's something inherently intelligent about creating something that just is a perennial seller. It just withstands the test of time because so many times within pop music, even in rock music and pop punk music, oftentimes it can sound pretty dated, you know, especially when they reference things that are of the time in which they're recorded. At this point, you know, they could have put a, a Napster reference in there and it would have been a mistake, I think. Jimmy World makes references to several other bands in the album, as well as albums and songs in the lyrical compositions of Bleed American. The good thing is these references are sly. They're hidden in there. They're not apparent unless you really know what you're listening for. They're kind of buried in there. A praise chorus, the final single from the album, contains lyrics from songs the band knew, such as Crimson and Clover by Tommy James and the Shondells, Our House by Madness, Kickstart My Heart by Motley Crue and Don't Let's Start by They Might Be Giants and Don't Let's Start. I immediately hum those words when I think of it. It's that, that bridge. Such a great bridge in a praise chorus. The title and lyrics of the Authority song are a direct reference to Authority Song by John Cougar Mellencamp and it also contains a reference to Automatic, an album by the Jesus and Mary Chain. And that's a band that Jim mentions a lot in interviews and things, so he's clearly a fan. The middle, the second single from the album, includes a guitar solo that, according to Adkins, is a tribute to Doug Gillard of Guided by Voices. Its lyrics speak about fitting in and self-acceptance of oneself. In turn, Sweetness was one of the songs that Adkins had more doubts about because of its lyrical content. I just had this melody in my head. This is his quote. I just had this melody in my head, and I was demoing it and singing it and kind of having a hard time with it. I almost didn't bring it to the band because I was thinking to myself, I can't just say nothing. I can't just use all these sort of a-lyrical woe-ohs for this much of a song. <laughs> and I'm really 
I'm fascinated by that. You know, I, he he strikes me as a guy that's very thoughtful, and he was probably overthinking this a little bit. I'm so glad that he decided to record the song, anyways, because it's such a catchy song, and the Will O's are part of that. It's such an anthem, and that's what people want at a live show. They want to be able to sing that, and Will O's are a really easy thing to sing. Sweetness, in particular. I've heard Jim Adkins say in a couple interviews that Sweetness, the melody, was one of those melodies that he had to get out of bed for in the middle of the night. So it came to him, and he had to get up and just immediately record it somehow. And he may have had like a four-track recorder in his room or something where he just laid it down really quickly. But I think that happens a lot to songwriters. They'll get these ideas once their mind quiets in the middle of the night, or they'll wake up in the middle of the night from a dream and just have this amazing melody stuck in their head so they just have to get it out they have to get it down and capture it as soon as possible and i i like the idea of jim doing that for sweetness it makes sense because it is such a catchy melody i remember vividly hearing it for the first time and hearing those woes and just immediately loving that particular hook and knowing that that was the hook and they were definitely going intentionally for that hook and i still love it and i still sing it in my car every time it comes on As far as the release goes, the actual release of Bleed American, after recording sessions of Bleed American began, the head of DreamWorks Records, Artists and Repertoire, which is A&R, that's what that stands for, Artists and Repertoire. I always assumed it was Artists and Representation, but no, it's Artists and Repertoire. Their division offered to help the band, DreamWorks did. The band considered it, but it was not until a year later when they returned to contact DreamWorks. After the band presented material they had recorded, the label signed them. And that was a smart decision, DreamWorks. Heard it and probably loved it and thought, oh, this is going to be huge. Bleed American was released on July 24th, 2001. Out of concern that its title could be misinterpreted following the September 11th attacks, the album was re-released with an eponymous title. In addition, the title track was renamed Salt, Sweat, Sugar. I don't remember this ever happening, but maybe it was just because it was well beyond them releasing the single. I don't remember them changing the actual name of the song, Bleed American, but okay, I guess they did. The album artwork showing a set of bowling trophies sitting on top of a cigarette machine is taken from William Eggleston's photograph titled Memphis. And I love the artwork. It's just very simple. And it's funny how artwork tends to just represent, you know, a, a set of songs after a while. It just becomes iconic in and of itself, just like the music does. The album became a bestseller. And in its first four months on the market, it sold 173,000 copies, making Bleed American Jimmy Eat World's most successful album. Lynn said that these sales were definitely a big deal to the band because it showed how the fan base was growing. If you're doing something, and this is this is him saying this, if you're doing anything creative, you want more and more people to enjoy what you do. And I would agree. Yeah, if you if you start a band, you want people to hear it. You want people to enjoy it. I know there's there's always going to be some level of protection for the early fans. You know, they want to they want to basically keep the secret hidden. They want to keep the secret theirs. But a band is always wanting more people to hear it. Otherwise, they're just jamming in their room. I think that's why bands are still created and musical artists are a thing because they want to be well known and they want to get their product out there and they want to get their their voice heard the album was certified gold in the united states in march 2002 and it had reached platinum status by august of that year it peaked at number 54 on the billboard 200 on august 11th 2001 the album produced four singles 
as I mentioned earlier, but I consider it to be five. The album's most successful single, obviously, was The Middle. It managed to reach the number one spot on the Billboard Modern Rock track charts. In addition to the album's singles, two EPs were released to support Bleed American. The first of these EPs, titled Good To Go EP, was released on February 22nd, 2002, exclusively in Japan. The second EP, titled The Middle, Slash a Praise Chorus Tour EP was a tour EP released in Australia in January 2003. On April 28, 2008, a deluxe edition of the album was released with a bonus disc containing several B-sides, as I mentioned earlier. The band would eventually go on to perform Bleed American and Clarity in their entireties for two UK shows in June of 2011, and they did they did full tours, anniversary tours for both albums. I did not get to see either of those, and I'm kind of bummed about that, but I did get to see the 10-year tour for Futures, and that was lovely, because Futures is a fantastic record as well. Futures was the record that came out after Bleed American in 2004. Bleed American was a critical and commercial success, helping the band gain mainstream popularity as well as its platinum certification in the United States and Canada by the, the Canadian Recording Industry Association, the CRIA. The album was also certified silver by the British Phonographic Industry, the BPI. Thomas Nassif of AbsolutePunk.net stated that praising this album is something that can't be done enough and opined that the album contained no bad songs, and he's totally right. Concluding, certainly one of the most memorable records of 2001, Bleed American might actually have the most lasting power of any album from that class. And it is a timeless record, and it seems like it transcends genres too, because I know people that really enjoyed pop punk around that time, punk rock, indie rock. It just unified all those people. I think everybody can kind of get behind a band like Jimmy Eat World. Mike Stagno of Sputnik Music praised Bleed American as an enjoyable, catchy mainstream rock album and noted its high replay value, particularly tracks such as Sweetness and Get It Faster. Entertainment Weekly described the album as a fine balancing act of emo edge tracks and wallet-packed rockers. <laughs> it's funny reading some of these reviews. The magazine Q listed Bleed American as one of the best 50 albums of 2001. Might be the best album of 2001, really. Okay. So I want to tell a really quick story about the first time I heard this particular album. So like I said earlier, I had a bunch of burned copies of mixed CDs that people would make me and some I would make myself. But I remember I had a, some mixed CDs with some songs of Clarity. And that was kind of my first. And I think Static Prevails too. I think a couple of songs from Static Prevails were on some mixed CDs that I had. But I didn't own any of the Jimmy World records at this point around 2000, 2001. But I knew I liked those songs. And... I was fortunate. I went on tour very young. I went on tour when I was 17 years old. The first tour that I ever went on, the summer of 2001, I went on tour with a local band called The Underdog Conspiracy, and I was filling in for their guitar player, Ryan. Their singer was named Ryan as well. He was a good friend of mine. He was the one that asked me to go. And it was about a three to four week tour, and it was actually the first time that, that I ever played Warp Tour. We snuck into a couple Warp Tours and played in a tent, and it was thrilling and amazing. And we were on tour with a band that was supporting The Underdog Conspiracy called Diversion 4.0, and they were a local band that I really enjoyed, pop punk rock band. And their singer, Nate, he I remember one day we were on tour and he said we've got to go to Best Buy I need to buy a record that came out today so we go to Best Buy all of us the three bands and we we walk inside and he picks up Bleed American and purchases it 
And we were listening to a lot of music on the road because as one does on tour, you're driving for hours and hours. And I remember him popping in Bleed American and immediately I was like, who is this? This is amazing. And he said, this band, you know, they've put out a couple records. I'm a big fan of the band. I believe in this particular band. And I was sort of dumbfounded. I hadn't heard them before I wasn't that that familiar with their their stuff but I remember him talking about how much he loved clarity and how this he knew this was going to be a departure like he had read some things about the record but we all just blasted this record pretty much for the remainder of our time on that particular tour and fun fact Nate the singer of Diversion 4.0 eventually went on to play bass guitar as a touring member of Fun the band Fun pretty cool he is an amazing dude. I still talk to him periodically on the interwebs, Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. So yeah, fun story. That was the person who turned me on to Bleed American. And then I immediately bought it when I got home. So thanks, Nate. I appreciate that. And it's a fun little story. I always tell people. Okay, so I want to quickly go through some of the tracks and just mention some of the things that I love about the recording of the particular songs. So the first track, obviously, Bleed American, the title track. I love this song for a lot of reasons, but I love how just in your face it is right from the beginning. Those first big chords plus the dissonant chords that still somehow work on the bottom of the fretboard that they're hitting, just very cool. Comes in with a really, really catchy verse. Still dark and poppy at the same time and just really catchy melodies really great melodies out of the gate good hooks i like seeing in the making of the record you can see tom and jim doing group vocals for the chorus just very anthemic big chorus and another thing that i love about this particular song is the second verse and just some of the layering and some of the panning that mark trombino does there's that syncopated guitar note that just kind of rings out but he's hitting a very catchy rhythm and it just kind of sits right underneath the vocals and i love how halfway through mark trombino starts panning it from left to right and he might even have like a keyboard sound underneath it to kind of lift it a little bit and kind of give it that chorus effect so it's kind of swimming through your headphones just really cool really cool bridge love the melodic guitar solo it's very cool i love the ending with all the layered screaming and everything just a really aggressive song hits you right out of the gate it's a great opening track for some reason spotify really likes this song i always put on playlists just random playlists and place that i work and bleed american comes up quite a bit but i never I never get tired of hearing it. And then the second song, a praise chorus, which Jim has mentioned, the skeleton is basically the same as Cautioners. The chord progression is very similar, but the layout of the song and the type of the songs that they are completely different. I love that the chorus is palm muted, which is not very common. That's a really kind of unique thing to have this palm muted chorus. I always sing the back of vocals. I think they probably left the back of vocals for that off for a reason, but man, it would have been cool to have some backup vocals right there that just that fifth harmony because it's just so easy to sing but they probably wanted to just keep it very anthemic and very easy to remember great verses really catchy melodies i love the bridge as well because the bridge is where it really kind of breathes and you've got the two vocal melodies that kind of overlap on top of each other and they're not really fighting for space they really complement each other and then you've got the big ending chorus just a great track and it makes sense for that one to be a single, even if it wasn't as big as the middle. And then obviously you've got the middle. The middle is Jimmy World's best known song. And for good reason, it's just a really catchy, simple pop song, pop rock song. I've heard people describe, 
I think it might have been Shane from the lead singer syndrome, Shane from Silverstein, who mentioned that this is like basically the best version of a pop rock anthem song. And I've heard Jim Adkins talk about how the middle was not overly thought out. And sometimes underthinking these songs during the, the writing process can actually be a good thing because if we overthink it, we can tweak with it to the point where it becomes less good and less pure. And it is. It's just a really simple, good, upbeat, catchy pop rock song. I love the guitar solo. Very melodic. You can hum it. And then track four, kind of bringing it down a little bit for your house. What's really cool about the verse is you've got a lot of different competing elements, but they all flow together. You've got kind of the strumming of the clean slash acoustic guitar, and then you've got this really intricate staccato syncopated bass line that kind of runs with the drums, but the drums are really simple at the same time, and there's a lot of air within it. It's just really cool, and it adds to the build-up to the chorus, which has a lot more layers that kind of like flowing through each piece. Just a really cool song, and you could tell that they were really inspired when they were recording it, Mark Trombino especially with his production style. Like You can just tell like he knew how he wanted to give it dynamics, and he knew how he wanted to make it build on itself. Really cool bridge, too. That's the great thing about a lot of these kind of slower, softer songs. Like They have really U2-esque bridges that just really breathe and give the song a lot of life beyond just the verses and the choruses. And then obviously the epic sweetness. And there's just cool production stuff all over this panning. He runs filters on a lot of the drums and a lot of the guitars in between on the softer parts to give it dynamics. And the really cool thing is the chorus is really lift because he adds an extra layer of distorted guitars on each end of the, the sonic spectrum. You've got it on the left and the right with a lot of stuff in between. And just, it sounds like he tripled the vocals on the whoa O's. Like you can tell they're grouped at least, but it just sounds really, really clean for 2001 or 2000 when they recorded it. And there might be a little bit of chorus on some of those big woos too, just to give it a little bit more sheen, vocal sheen. And I just love the production on it. I love the pounding of the, the two notes on the piano at the end, just to give it that little extra. And... There's elements that are really poppy. Like I like at the end when they go back to the major key completely for all of the ending guitar chords. And I love the the flanger on the drums leading into the last bridge outro into the last chorus. Just so epic. And if you listen to it with good headphones, you can really hear like all of the different sounds that he was layering on top of each other. But he still he didn't overdo it. He didn't just put a ton of crap on it. He was tasteful with his effects and his filters on all the sounds. The whole song is basically one giant chorus, which is just amazing. Just an incredibly timeless song. Really cool. And it ends on a resolving note. And sometimes I don't really love that. Like sometimes I like when the ending of a song is unresolved. But for some reason here, it just it's so triumphant and it just lands perfectly. And then what's cool about this album is it just weaves. It goes up and then it comes right back down. And that happens with Sweetness right into Hear You Me. You've got this really epic rock, pop rock song, this opus. And then it goes right into this, this really sad and personal slower song with Hear You Me. And I hear a lot of elements of clarity in this one especially with the the subdued drums in the beginning kind of reminds me of table for the glasses love all the backup vocals really cool how they used a distorted filter on the piano for the what would be a guitar solo leading into the second verse it's just a really cool tasteful interesting thing to layer in there yeah all the backup vocals were just magical in a way because the two voices complement each other really really well i think it speaks to mark trombino's production style here like he could have just left it bare bones it could have just been all very organic instruments which there are a lot of 
but there's just some really cool techniques and cool tricks in here as far as production goes just to give the song a little bit more life and a little bit more personality love that song if you don't don't there's a ton of cool stuff going on here as well pretty much all the songs have a ton of production effects and different techniques that were used by Mark Trombino. The one thing I love about this is obviously the chorus on all the the notes. I think some of those notes were probably just isolated, like he literally recorded them once and then he just repeated them. May have even Beat Detected them. I know he does that on a couple of the songs on this album. So Beat Detective is just a plugin that literally puts your, it's usually used for drums, but it puts it on a grid so that it's perfect. But the cool thing about Beat Detective is you can actually use it with vocals and guitars, which I would imagine not many people knew this trick, or maybe they were literally drawing it in in the early 2000s, because I'm not sure Beat Detective even existed then. But now what you can do is you can basically put guitars on a grid so that they're perfect. So you can hit a note once, like ding, and then repeat that on the perfect grid-like skeleton of the song. And it just gives you kind of like a robotic effect or a machine-like effect with the guitars. The verses and the chorus are all very, very expertly done. Really great melodies. I love how the chorus builds, but the bridge in this thing is really special. Just all the different layers, the octave chords that lead right into all of the vocal layering that they have right before the last chorus is one of the best things I think I've ever heard in this genre really cool production stuff get it faster a darker tune also lots of really really cool production stuff the whole beginning like it's setting the scene it's really creepy and there's a lot of layers kind of beneath the surface it makes me wonder if he created a lot of those sounds organically or if he just pulled them out of already made sound libraries and things but i would imagine it was probably a mixture of both there at the beginning leading up to the song huge chorus very anthemic could have been a single surprised it wasn't great guitar solo in the bridge and then you have Cautioners, which is another song that kind of brings it back down after big, epic, darker rock song. And what's really cool is you can hear that they isolated all the drum hits. So they did one at a time and they just basically put it into a grid. Again, kind of like what the guitars do in If You Don't, Don't. It's just really cool, expertly made recording and production. He did the same thing with the guitars here. So he cut it all up in Pro Tools and then just kind of layered it where he wanted it. And there's that really interesting syncopated rhythm of the guitars and the verse. And you could tell they were having fun. I'm sure Mark Trombino was having a lot of fun when he was recording this. And then he probably showed all the guys and he was like, are you guys cool with this? Because I think this is kind of cool. Not something you could actually emulate live, but still a very cool production. And I'm sure they've done interpretations of this song live since then. The Authority song, which is another really catchy, upbeat pop rock number to kind of pull it out of cautioners. Another great song. I love the backup vocals again on this chorus, lended by the the female artist that did all the backup vocals on a lot of these songs. And then My Sundown, bringing it back down for the end of the album. Also another beautiful song. It does all the things that Hear You Me, Cautioners, and Your House does. It just gives the album a little bit of brevity and a little bit of lightness. And it just adds to the context of the whole album where you've got 11 songs and they all have their own personality, they have their own life. But yeah, again, backup vocals, I think, make this song especially great in that they're just exactly what your ear wants to hear. It's just ear candy. There you have it. Thank you for indulging me again on this deep dive of the legendary album Bleed American. 
by Jimmy World. I hope you're having a fantastic day today. I hope you're listening to your favorite records. And yeah, drop me a line if you like this episode. My Instagram handle is Kyle underscore Devlin underscore underscore. I'm going to try to get some social media pages up for this podcast, maybe even start a Patreon page so that we can include some some bonus episodes and some extra stuff and, and all sorts of fun goodies. And I will be having guests on this podcast soon as well. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, listen to your favorite records. Revisit some of them because music is important and it's good for us. All right, have a great day. Bye.